doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with M.A. about her long and complex health journey. M.A. has been sick on and off her whole life. She was diagnosed with fibromyalgia at just 12 years old. And like many of us, M.A. has had an extremely difficult time getting doctors to take her seriously. She's been diagnosed with a laundry list of conditions, including Lyme disease, Ehlers-Danlos, Epstein-Barr, chronic pneumonia and strep, narcolepsy with cataplexy, and of course, fibromyalgia. But Amaze doctors have disagreed over these many diagnoses, and she is still struggling to get care. This conversation is a fantastic insight into what it's like to live with chronic illness and to go through all the complexities and the struggles of trying to find help, not being taken seriously, not knowing what to do, having to become your own advocate to educate yourself, trying to find help from alternative sources, going in and out of remission because these type of illnesses are complex taking leaps forward, then leaps backwards, and then trying to find a way to live inside of this confusion. Sometimes getting a diagnosis or even multiple diagnoses just isn't enough because you still need to get doctors who will agree on these diagnoses and take action. And so many doctors are looking for reasons not to help people, and then patients just fall through the cracks. So I really appreciated and empathized with Amay's story, and I was so grateful that she took the time to share it with us. A couple of quick pieces of business before we get into that. Thank you so much to whoever it was that left us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts this week. That is always so appreciated. We are up to 21 ratings, which is absolutely fantastic. So thank you all so much for helping this show to reach other people by leaving a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Chris Fowler and Steve Cavanaugh, our Patreon producers who helped to make this show possible today, and the rest of our Patreon community. I appreciate you all so, so much. I am hopeful to someday earn a living wage from content creation like this podcast, and I would very much appreciate your support. You can head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast and sign up to support this show for as little as $2 per month. Andy and I have just recorded our very first bonus episode of the Major Pain Podcast, available to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Andy and I had a great time recording this episode. We talked for a little over an hour. We started by answering a question from Sunny, one of our patrons, about which episodes have affected us and our guests the most so far. And this was really tough because... Every single conversation has been so important to me. Um, so I ended up just sharing a bunch of behind the scenes stuff, stuff you wouldn't know from just listening to the podcast about several of the conversations, talking about things that I've heard from people who have come on the show, about how it's impacted them, and of course, the way that producing the show has impacted me. And of course, you know, we also talked a little bit about what we've been watching on TV, movies we've watched recently, um, a lot of stuff that actually pertains to the show in tangential ways. And it was just a really great time. So I'm really excited to share it. It is available right now for everyone who is supporting us through Patreon. There are several ways for you to access the show. The easiest is just to go listen directly on the Patreon website, patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast, or you can download the Patreon app and you can listen on your smart device on the app. Of course, you can download it from the website or the app and listen on whatever player you prefer. So yeah, I hope that it will be accessible to you. Please let me know if you have any questions about how to access it. And if you'd like to sign up to support the show on Patreon, you will be able to access this episode right away at any support tier. If you are part of the Patreon community and you've listened to this episode, please let me know by leaving a comment 
Uh, you can comment directly on the episode on Patreon. I just want to make sure that people are accessing it and listening to it. I'm just thinking about adding this as a regular monthly thing, a bonus podcast episode. I just want to make sure that's something that people want and are engaging with. And if so, I, you know, I'm, I really enjoyed doing this. So I would love to keep doing it moving forward. Um, just need to make sure that it's something that you want as the people who support this show. So definitely let me know. We got some comments on the website about our past episodes that I wanted to share with you. The first one is from Morgan, who commented on Elizabeth's episode, Living with Histamine Intolerance. And you will remember Morgan because we talked to her about the EDS triad, Ehlers-Danlos, mast cell disease, and POTS. Morgan says, adding on to the allergy discussion, there are also mast cell allergies, which are separate from Ig allergies, so they won't show up on those blood tests. Histamine itself is hard to test for. It can disappear so quickly from samples. It was great to hear from someone with a similar disease. I laughed so hard at the bubble comment because that's what they say about mast cell activation syndrome patients allergic to the world. Morgan, thank you for your comment. Always great to hear from you. This comment was interesting to me because I have a very extreme reaction to mold. And I saw one mold specialist who thought that I was reacting to the VOCs that mold gives off, the volatile organic compounds, not necessarily an, a histamine response to the mold spores, but a sort of chemical response to the VOCs. And who knows, maybe I have some sort of mast cell activation syndrome with mold. I don't know. It, it makes sense. But I've never seen a doctor or an allergist who's heard of it before. <laughs> So it's important to stay on top of what's being done in the research field with all of these different conditions, learning about where the research is going, finding doctors who are educated in the newer research. And, you know, it opens up new pathways and avenues of care. We got another great comment from Karen, one of our Patreon supporters, on our episode with Jimmy and Charles from a couple weeks ago about Charles's idiopathic ventricular tachycardia. Karen says, I really enjoyed this episode. Charles and Jimmy were very engaging, and you made them very comfortable to talk about medical issues that Charles has. A member of my own family has a pacemaker, so this was particularly of interest to me. Thanks for again bringing a chronic illness to the forefront so that people know they're not alone. Karen, thank you for your comment. I always love hearing from anyone on any of our episodes. It's really important for me to feel like I'm in touch with the audience and hearing from people about uh, their reaction to the show. So I, it's really helpful for me. I always appreciate it. So thank you for these comments. You can leave a comment on any episode on our website, majorpainpodcast.com. And you can also interact with each episode on our social media accounts, Instagram and TikTok at Major Pain Podcast. Speaking of, uh, a few weeks back, we spoke with Elias about their trio of chronic pain syndromes, ankylosing spondylitis, Crohn's disease, and fibromyalgia. And two people commented on Instagram that they are very close with their diagnoses to Elias, which really surprised me. You know, it's it never ceases to surprise me how with chronic illness, this is something that we always kind of, you know, keep private, things that we don't talk about publicly. And as I do this show longer and talk to more people and uh, hear from more people about what it's like to hear from other people with chronic illness, there's just so much similarity. You know, so many of us are suffering alone and suffering in silence. And when we speak up and when we share with each other, we can find similarity. We find other people going through things like us. And to me, that's just so powerful to not have to be so isolated as you suffer, you know? So I'm always so excited to be able to facilitate any connections like that to um, get people in touch with other people who live with their chronic illness. It's happened quite a few times already on the show. It's just so valuable for me in my life to feel like I am 
a part of something that is valuable for other people. You know, this creating this show has has done so much for me in so many different ways. And I just appreciate you so much for listening, for uh, participating, and for supporting this show. Thank you so much. All right, well, let's jump into our conversation with Amay about her long history of complex chronic illness. Amay, welcome to the show. Hi. I'm really excited to talk to you today. We've Another person we connected to through TikTok, and we've been messaging back and forth a little bit, and the little bits I've heard of your story are so interesting, and I'm really excited to get to know you and hear the full story today. Well, I'm really excited to get a chance to talk about some of these things. Absolutely. So, Emma, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a question I struggle with. Um, Always, uh, <laughs> my brain immediately goes to um, I'm a I'm a mother. Hmm. Um, I have three children, certainly, wow. and that is uh, well. That has been the solitary focus um, of my life for the past twenty years. Wow. Um, researching medicine and um, chronic illness, and oh God the absolutely every aspect of reality and life around us that uh, interacts with those things. Mm -hmm. um, those are things that I focus on because I have to, not because I, I want to, yeah. but um, who am I? I am a, a mother. Yeah. Uh, outside of my three kids, I have lost count on the number of other uh, I say children, but some of them are as old as 28, 30 years old now, but uh, that call me mama mm. or some variation therein. And that is, um, that is my raison, as they say. Yeah. Um, it's what keeps me going. And it's also it's the fuel that manages to carry me through all of the research and all of the um, testing things on myself. Yeah. Well, all we all need purpose. Yeah. <laughs> we do. Yeah. There has to be something for me anyway. Um, after more than 30 years of, of being sort of trapped inside of the medical industry mm -hmm. i need something more than myself or my own quality of life to carry me through the effort of continuing mm. to try yeah instead absolutely. of just giving up <laughs> yeah and i know you have a, a history in journalism do you mind telling us a little bit about that sure um that was uh that was a shock to me. Um, <laughs> it had never been a life goal of mine um, whatsoever. And uh, oddly enough, it was something that occurred in part because I had managed to take my symptoms, um, all of them, into remission. Mm. And um, I, I woke up one day and I realized that it had been weeks or months, I wasn't sure since I had felt any of the things that had been the everyday reality of my life for a long time. Yeah. And um, 
I looked around and, and my first question was, well, what do, what do I want to do? Yeah. I mean, what? Like, I, I feel good. What do I do? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, if I could do anything and that's what it felt like yeah. is that I could do anything. <laughs> what, what do I want to do? And um, I started writing about it. Um, mm. A thing that uh, I had done because I just, I wanted something for my kids. They were, they were young. I only had two at the time and they were one and five years old. And I wanted to do something special, something big. And I had no idea if I could maintain the state that I was in or not. I just mm. knew I had it right then. Yeah. And I wanted to do something with it. Totally and relate. Totally relate to that. So I boy did I. <laughs> I um I donated absolutely everything that I owned, um, with the exception of my books, uh, to charity. And I moved with my kids and my two, you know, giant Yeti great Pyrenees dogs <laughs> onto a little old RV. Uh, I think it was 20 years old at, at that point. And uh, my only goal at that point was that I wanted them to see the country that we live in. I wanted them to see things and meet people. And um, beyond that, I realized that uh, a lot of what I had done on the path of, of seeking remission um, felt very unsustainable. Mm. The cost and the effort and the time. I had a very difficult time understanding how I was going to sustain that in the long term. Um, in the environment that we lived in, in the culture that we lived in. And I had babies and it's scary enough when you're sick, but when you look at your babies and you think, my God, what if they got sick? Mm -hmm. What do I do? And your whole mind goes to prevention. And nothing is off limits. What, whatever it is that could possibly add to protecting them from having the experience and the life that you had it is reasonable to mm -hmm. consider. Mm -hmm. And I made a list of what I really wanted for them. And um, we hit the road blindly before cell phones had. Uh, we didn't have smartphones. I didn't have a cell phone. Um, there was no guarantee of having access to making a phone call. Um, we had an atlas and <laughs> we hit the road and we just started driving north. And um, we managed 32 states wow. of traveling and I chronicled the entire thing along the way. Um, and uh, I think it was about two weeks after I had started writing, I was contacted by the New York Times wow. asking for an interview from um, the editor. And 
I deleted the email because I didn't think it was real. (laughs) (laughs) I got another email about a week later from somebody else saying, listen, um, the editor of the New York Times has made attempts to contact you and and you haven't responded. So (laughs) I'm reaching out and I I went, "Um, well, that was unexpected, (laughs) but you know what? Sure. Why, why not? Let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what I'm doing and, and why, and by all means, come take a look. And, um, without intention, I wound up becoming the, the poster child, um, for what they called it voluntary simplicity. Mm. Um, and the anti McMansion weirdos which you know that long ago we we were the the weirdos the things that we were saying were considered crazy um they're so normal now they're so very normal but um that was the means that i wound up doing uh interview after interview and and writing and i wound up with a management firm and an agent and an editor and a publisher and i had no idea, no idea what to do with that, um, and no idea how to use that in an effective way. When I wrote, I could focus things in a way that I could get my real thoughts and feelings on, on the why out yeah. to my readers, which after the times soared to a global readership that kept crashing the server and thousands of emails coming in constantly and um i just really preferred being able to communicate directly rather than by way of somebody that had a a different intent behind talking to me yeah totally yeah when you when your words are being um read by thousands of people or when anything that you say is consumed by thousands of people, there will be many people who misunderstand or who take the wrong thing from it. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have editorial control over what you are saying and that's happening, that sounds very overwhelming. (laughs) It it was, it it was terrifying. Um, I had, uh, my father called me one day and he says, do you, do you know that, you know, your kids are being discussed on the internet? Oh, wow. And, um, many things like that. I, uh, found myself sitting on my bathroom floor after that phone call in, in tears. Yeah. And, um, my agent calls while I'm in this state and I tell him I, I can't, I can't do this. I just can't do this. And he says, well, um, it's a little late to make that decision. Um, when everybody is, is recognizing you at Mm. this point, but if you're going to quit, uh, I recommend doing it right now, (laughs) (laughs) which I did not. I, uh, I did not. I allowed the whole thing of, one, two, three, here we go. I guess we're going to see what happens yeah. to be recorded. I had 
at what point I had a um, South Korean film crew <laughs> following me. And I had a journalist from the New York Times ask to stay on my RV with me and travel for, for part of the way. Um, it was all recorded. The, uh, the winds and the failures and the, oh my God, what are we going to do? <laughs> moments. I, um, does any of this still, does any of this still exist? If anyone listening wants to check it out? <laughs> um, you know, honestly, uh, I wish, I wish that it did. Mm. Um, it was my website that housed all of this was um, taken down mm. uh, very much against my will. And uh, it is gone. Oh, um, frustrating. It is. I, I've had a lot of up and down feelings about it. Um, I'm definitely a everything that happens mm, kind of woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, there's, there is that part of me that, that is very frustrated. Um, also because I had limited all access to me to that, that portal. Mm -hmm. um, so when it up and disappeared without notice, all of those people had no way Mm -hmm. to contact me and I had no way to tell them what happened. Wow. Um, so there, there was a loss there. There was definitely uh, a grieving, um, some pain that went with wow. it. Then there's that other part of me, that case rock kind of person that goes, well, if you really have something to say, then I guess perhaps you ought to, uh, go out there and do that again yeah. and you know instead of mourning it and the people who heard what you had to say before it was taken down they can't unhear that you know the no. all of that adventure that you had during this moment of good health um was documented and and consumed so yeah that's pretty pretty incredible but okay so let's let's get into this a little bit because we talked about how you were in remission but let's talk mm -hmm. about what you were in remission from so uh, so, Emma, um, what is your major pain? Yeah, uh, I had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia mm -hmm. when I was 12 years old, which wow. was um, the uh, shift from the 1980s into the 1990s. Wow. Um, at the time, nobody, in, including the uh, gross majority of physicians and specialists, had, had heard of this before yeah, um fibro at 12 so you've been in chronic pain since you were 12 years old well that was when i was diagnosed okay so um, even before that very very much before that um i was one of those kids that was told that i had uh, a poor constitution mm -hmm. um that i had growing pains that um you know, I had all of these things that, you know, some of them, oh, you know, it will get better as she ages. And um, some of them, that's oh, just the luck of the draw. Some people have a bad constitution. Yeah. <laughs> it was never supposed to, to get worse. Yeah. Though. My, and, uh, my trumpet teacher in high school told me I had tired blood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. And, and, you know, I think the interesting thing is, is that, you know, some of these sound uh, absurd, like tired blood or, or a poor constitution. Um, certainly, it, it's not a particularly helpful thing. Um, and at the same time, it's not 100% incorrect either. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would say I have very tired blood. Um, <laughs> you can see that in labs. I, uh, I swear to you, I, I absolutely can feel that exact thing. I, I, where am I tired? Deep in my cells. Mm. Everything that makes up the physicality of me is, is exhausted. Yeah. Um, I did make it to university where I uh, decided to study biochemistry mm -hmm. and um, I spent all of my free time in the university library researching myself. Mm -hmm. I, um, something in me told me that there's, there's more to know about this. Than just um, the fibromyalgia. Yeah. yeah. And it, if that is, it then why why am i getting worse over time mm -hmm. and uh beyond that it doesn't help me a whole lot to have a name if it means nothing in terms of sorting out why why am i sick well right. why do i have fibromyalgia well if you don't have that information it makes it very very difficult to know what to do totally to improve things for yourself and this and is back in the day when fibromyalgia was very poorly understood i mean we're i feel like we're close to a breakthrough with fibromyalgia with everything i've been reading it's like they're finally starting to understand and uh i mean but back in these days it was just a name with no necessarily no action to take right and it was also controversial Absolutely. within the medical community yeah. um having the diagnosis did not exactly garner respect mm -hmm. from your doctors yeah. um much like lyme yeah. today and all of this um, is changing it, now yes. all changing for the better <laughs> but yeah but i it totally is. totally hear you on that for sure it is um for me though what has happened over the years so i was diagnosed when i was 12 i am about to be 42 and when i was 35 in an act of desperation because not only had i lost control of uh, everything that seemed to be tied to having my symptoms in remission but i was getting notably sicker and sicker mm -hmm. with more and more terrifying symptoms and um can you tell us about those, those symptoms kids. what's that can you tell us about those symptoms yes um I noticed that uh, with every pregnancy, um, my pain became significantly more severe mm -hmm. for me. Um, but there were other things that were happening. Um, my heart was something that was giving me trouble, and nobody knew why. It didn't. It didn't make sense. Um, I started to have. Uh, I didn't know what to call it at the time, uh, twitching. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it was sort of like, well, it's not really twitching because it, it seems to be such a, a violent, gross movement that's happening. It's more like jerking. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, now, you know, looking back, I, I realize that um, that was Maya Klonik. Uh That was the, the onset of neurological symptoms mm -hmm. that have come to be a primary controlling aspect of my reality. Mm. Um, and uh, locating a physician that was able to look at the things that I had been diagnosed with and look at me the way that I look and the way that I speak and all of these things and, and take me seriously that yeah. that something that serious was going on in my life they didn't believe me yeah and it's so common it's so frustrating it it is and you know nowadays we talk about things like um medical ptsd yeah and you know did i know that at the time a absolutely not all i knew was that i couldn't force myself to to go through it anymore to not be taken seriously to beg and plead just for testing by all means do the tests and rule out yeah. something yeah if if you don't think that's what it is i i want to know how wonderful would that be actually mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. be told listen we don't know what it is but at least it's not at least this. it's not this yeah totally <laughs> That's not how it works when we live in a country where we are many decades from the beginning of biomedical ethics arguments about mm. healthcare rationing and um, medical paternalism, Whoa. which is yeah. wow. reality. <laughs> well said, absolutely. Um, something like managed healthcare organizations um, making decisions about what we can and cannot receive as testing mm -hmm. or treatment. Um, and the people making those decisions, not only are they not physicians, but they have no tie and no concept of the research that's happening. And they don't care because that's, that's simply not what their job is. Um, they work for a massive corporation that does the work that it does because that is how they make money right. and the entire globe at this point is is familiar with the problems of uh for-profit medicine the way that it's happening here here in america um, yes absolutely yes yeah. um so it's a pretty tough topic with yeah. a physician well how do you navigate that as a sick solid. person it's I mean, I've been living through that for years as well. And what you said about rationing of, of care is very interesting to me because I have often felt like there are tests that could be done that aren't being done, you know, for me personally. And it's like, there are. yeah, why can't we rule these things out? And yeah, I know that there are, you know, that this is like a 1% chance that it could be this thing. But I've been looking for over a decade. So why aren't we looking at those things? You know, like, why aren't we looking at the rare diseases and learning how to advocate and, I, and talk to my doctor and get some of those tests to be done has taken me over a decade. Uh, yes. And I, I that and this is why I am um, not a pleasant experience for a physician, because <laughs> I can I can answer that for you um, and not with the uh, guessing. Yeah. Um, 
I uh, I happen to have have written um, in university um, a paper on the biomedical ethics of healthcare rationing, uh, a thing that I could do because many 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 others have written on those issues. What yeah. is, what are the ethical issues with healthcare rationing? Discussion we can have because healthcare rationing has been occurring for a long time. Yeah. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be able to have that discussion in, in that way. Um, so on the one hand, there, there's a, a simple and, and human response to that. Um, the reason that I was studying biochemistry is because my intent was to be a physician. Mm-hmm. So um, it was my business to know what that would look like and what's involved in that. Um, So I understand very well the position that physicians are in right now. I understand their humanity and as much suffering that I have endured because of their choices um, and their feelings. and their human fallibility. Hmm. I have a lot of empathy for physicians because of the position that they are in, which they have very, very little control over. Wow! So a lot of Americans can say, "Hey, listen, you look at us and and you think, why? Why is your government like this? Why are these decisions happening?" And and we can all say. Well, it's not because we like it. <laughs> we would love for it to change. Um, it's not that simple. And it's it's the same thing for physicians. And mm. it's not that simple. And they are human beings. And when they are inside of a system that is that heavily controlled by so many enormous authoritative organizations, um, their ability to move around or outside of that is limited and it can be dangerous for their, for their livelihood and for their profession. And uh, I understand that. And I also understand what it looks like to have more and more and more patients show up to your practice that you cannot help. Mm. There's nothing you can do within the system even if you can test and diagnose there are so many things that we can test for and we do and we diagnose and it doesn't help the patients yeah that's very true yeah can you sleep at night if your whole life was dedicated to this pursuit i want to help people I want to reduce suffering. I want to take care of my patients. And you find that increasingly and so rapidly, fewer and fewer of your patients can actually have an increased quality of life from what you can do for them. And then you throw in there the aspect of of healthcare rationing and why does it happen and who is making the rules about the manner in which we're going to, to ration healthcare. 
And for people like you and I, the place that that really begins is testing. Testing is very often an expensive thing. Mm -hmm. And it can be a very, very long road. Even if you're doing test after test after test, it can be a lot of expensive tests just to rule things out. Right. For just, just one person. Yeah. For one person. Right. So when you have managed healthcare organizations, HMOs, PPOs, and they they rule. They absolutely rule. And with an iron fist, your doctor can say, and they can fight for you. My patient needs this test. My patient needs this medication or this treatment. And the insurance company comes back and goes, well, we don't think so. Yeah. So we're not going to pay for it. Right. Um, in fact, we're not going to pay for that for anybody that fits the bulk of your patients. So have fun with that. <laughs> we can keep talking about this, but guess what? We say no and we get the final say. Yeah. Um, physicians will talk to you about how much time they spend trying to get things covered for their patients, trying to get paid for the things that they are supposed to get paid for and that the insurance companies agree for. And yet they have to track that payment down, trying to get pre-authorization for things. Why? Because yeah, in this state with this insurance company, that's just how we do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, that's difficult. And they're spending a lot of their time after they see you just managing that aspect of it. Um, but that isn't even the biggest part of the problem. It's that doctors work in groups. They work in clinics collectively in the way that we understand it to be now uh, for a reason. And that is also tied to managed healthcare. Doctors don't set up office and they work by themselves and they make their own decisions anymore. That's just not medicine in this country. And the reason for that is managed health care. They can't. Mm. They cannot afford it. They cannot afford the insurance alone. They cannot afford the staff that it takes in order to work within the managed health care system. And so they work in groups. And in doing so, they make themselves even more vulnerable to the managed health care organizations. And this looks like what we deal with, with testing. They yeah. will give an allotment to the group. This is how many MRIs you can order. This is how many MRIs with contrast you can order. Mm. This is how many of all of these types of tests that we really don't like to pay for that you can order. If you go beyond that, there's going to be a financial loss wow. at the end of the year for you, but not just for you. That financial loss is going to be for all of the partners in your practice. The rest of the physicians are going to take that financial loss if you choose to use more testing than we've asked you. Yeah, you know, I, I keep saying this over and over, and I'm curious to ask you about it because you seem to know a lot more than I do about this. 
Um, that was my experience at my old medical center. And then I switched to the University of Washington, which is a, you know, a, a university hospital. And everything worked different. They were much more willing to, o- to order tests, much more willing to send me to different places. And my doctor told me once why it was that way. It was a different type of organization. Um, and I don't understand HMOs, PPOs. I don't understand it. But um, it, se- it seems to me that this, uh, the university hospital was different in some way, and my care improved dramatically. Um, do you, wh- what is the difference there? <laughs> um, there's a lot of things. Um, at, there's a lot of things that work there. Um, when you work with physicians who are part of a teaching program, um, sometimes you get lucky. Uh, sometimes you don't, and it, it can actually be even worse than, mm. you know, the general population um, of clinics and physicians you can access. And I'm sure many of us have uh, stories. Um, there are a lot of people out there discussing um, the trauma, uh, the emotional trauma mm-hmm. that they have from going to places uh, like Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Um, so, there is an aspect of it where if you are working with a teaching facility, um, their process, their funding, everything that they do it, it is just a little bit different mm-hmm. here and there so that they have the ability to do a little bit more of what they want to. Mm-hmm. Because if you're working with a teaching facility, then you are also working more closely to research that is being done. You are working more closely with testing. You are getting a little bit closer to the edge of that that box that we are all mm, stuck in, yeah. where questions are being asked and funding is being provided by something other than what you bring with the insurance that you happen to be tied to. Mm-hmm. And so they have a little bit more freedom in that. And you have... Um, you have the physicians um, in lead roles in places like that who are actively doing research and trials and publishing papers still. Um, there is funding and there's accolade when you're functioning on that level. Yeah. Get yourself outside the box, find something new, do something new, and you have a payoff for that. And outside of that limited scale, that doesn't exist. And on the more human level, when you go outside of that area, what you have is physicians who they went to medical they went to medical school. They worked very, very hard. They damn near killed themselves just to get through. And financially, they're going to pay for that. For a long, long time on top of it. Um, They're invested in what they're doing um, very much. But you can only teach so much in any amount of time. And despite the the rigorous um, nature of learning to be a physician through all of the steps that that takes you still have a limited amount of time it take when a when a doctor actually begins their career they are finally completed with their 
required education. They are so much older than people who go into pretty much any other career mm -hmm. that you could choose. They spend a long time by comparison. Mm -hmm. um, but if you think about what there is to know about fibromyalgia, and then you realize how many doctors went through medical school before we even knew that word mm -hmm. at all, <laughs> and how many doctors went through medical school being told that, you know, if they heard of certain rare illnesses at all, they were told about this as if it was this exceptionally rare thing that they themselves were never really going to see hmm. in their practice. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. It's a note. And it's really nothing more. But that's your whole life and if you are the person with that disease. That's a really interesting. What I love about what you're saying is that it is so important for the patient to understand the other side because we often get upset with doctors for being unwilling to do certain things for us. But if you start to think about it from the doctor's perspective and the box that they are in, then it starts to make a little bit more sense. And we are all human beings inside of a flawed system trying desperately to survive, you know? And for the patient side, it's like, I just want to live my life and be out of pain and find an answer. And for the doctor's yes. side, it's like, well, I have all of these rules and regulations and all of these pressures and things sitting on top of me that I have to manage while trying to provide the best care possible. And it's just a really complicated system. But I do want, I want to jump back to when you were 35 and you finally found a doctor who was willing to listen to you and run more tests. I want to dig into your story a little bit. Um, I love all of, I love all this information. You obviously have learned so much over the years and it's part of why I love doing this show is like, I learned so much from talking to other people who've been through the chronic illness journey, but yeah, well, what is, what happened with your story when you were 35? This actually ties right back in yeah. to what we were talking about. Um, what I did out of desperation was pay cash. Mm. I located a physician who's, Absolutely every degree that he had was from the Ivy League in this country, um, which was great. But uh, beyond that, what this physician was doing was stepping outside of that managed healthcare box. Mm -hmm. um, he did not accept insurance. Wow. He didn't work within it. He only worked with patients who were going to pay for whatever it was that they he determined that they needed wow. whether it was the that testing. <laughs> right and the part of the reason that we don't really know that that exists because even if we do for the vast majority of us it's not going to be accessible it's absolutely. very very expensive absolutely um it it's very expensive to pay cash for testing one test that he did cost three thousand five hundred dollars yeah just one and he essentially tested for it felt like everything under the sun um despite all of my education and my research as a as a patient not even as a student as a patient um he tested for things that i had to go i don't even know what that is <laughs> Uh, somehow I've never even heard of that. I, I can't believe it, but I'm going to have to go home and find out what it is you're testing for. Um, it was a fortune. It was an absolute fortune. Yeah. Um, 
but it was a very important time in my life. Um, he did the tests um, and I spent a very long time recovering just from the testing. Um, I giving, I gave 12 vials of blood in one day. Um, <laughs> And that wasn't the end of the blood draws. <laughs> and there, there was more to it than that. Um, so there was having to recover from the tests. There was the waiting for the tests. Oh. Um, and when I went back to him, um, he had me come into his office rather than um, one of the exam rooms, which was new. I had... Uh, I had only ever had that with my neurologist. And the reason for that was, is that we did a lot of discussion of, of research. We did a lot of discussion and less exam. Um, I had a bad feeling as soon as it happened. Um, his wife was the office manager and she asked me to come into his office and uh, they offered me coffee and water and asked if I was comfortable. And I thought, ah, this is not good. This is not good. Something's and coming. Something's coming. And he came in and he had all of my results and he sat down at the desk across from me and he opened the folder and he, he started taking out papers and he's just sort of, laying them out across the desk and, and kind of looking at them and moving them about and kind of lining them up. And <laughs> I could tell, anybody could tell, he didn't know how to start. He didn't know what to say. And he was sort of stalled out on how to proceed and so me being me and knowing how to read a whole lot of lab reports I could see some of what was on those papers and so I helped him out and I jumped in and I said okay um I see that we have some positives there. And I know that that isn't a great thing because two of them that I can see definitely um, are not going to interact well in terms of what we can do about them. I, I know that those two things are not mixing well. And I'm hoping that you know something that I don't about what we can do. But um, I need to know what the rest of that says. Yeah. And so we went through it page by page by page. And um, everything was positive. Everything was positive. It wasn't, uh, we found out that you have Lyme disease. It was everything that he had tested for. Wow. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I think um, that was what carried me through the appointment was sort of the, um, the shock 
and my own brain's inability to get to a point because there wasn't one. What was the list the, of things that were positive? <laughs> there was Lyme disease, mm -hmm. um, which I knew very little about at the time. Um, I had done the research in the weeks waiting for results just so that I could be prepared in case this did turn up positive. Um, but it was Lyme disease and many of uh, what we call the, the co-infections co like um, yeah. Bartonella mm -hmm. and things like this. Yeah. Um, chronic active Epstein-Barr virus. Um, gosh, there were 12 or 13 things that turned up positive wow. for this. Um, enough that it's just flat out difficult for me to, to make the list. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked a bit before we started recording, and you mentioned uh, Lyme disease, Ehlers-Danlos, Epstein-Barr, chronic pneumonia, chronic strep. Was that was mm -hmm. the, this was the moment when all those things came into the picture? Not air, not the not the EDS. Oh, interestingly. really? Um, yeah, that was. Uh, <laughs> oh heavens! Um, he was overwhelmed. Yeah, and. Uh, it makes me it makes me sad for him because I oh my god who would want to be in that position yeah um, because the the fact was is that as we started to go through the list and you know he said well we could do this and I would respond and say yeah except doesn't that have a negative interaction with this other thing mm -hmm. that's positive and he would go back to shuffling papers and say, well, yes. Hmm. Yeah, it does. And w we went back and forth, um, both, I think kind of desperate and, uh, just trying to get through to the other side of, um, whatever this was that was happening between us. And it was, it was painful. Yeah. Um, and at the end, and I have a lot of respect for him for this, so much respect. In the end, he looked at me and he said, I don't know what to do. Mm. That's and so there are important. some of these things that you know way more about than I do. Wow. And I can't change that. And the best thing that I could do is recommend treatments that you know isn't going to be a great idea because of the complicating factors i can refer you to an immunologist i can refer you to a neurologist and we can see what they say but we can't make these complicating factors go away None of this is something we can just make it go away. I have a lot of respect for his ability to tell me that. Yeah, it's huge. Just to say, I don't know. Crazy. It's yes. really important. And that, that's something that I wish that I had gotten from a couple of doctors. Because instead of them telling me they weren't sure, um, you know, it goes one of two ways. They either tried to deny the existence of it at all. <laughs> when they don't know what it is, or yes. they try to pretend they know, and then you spend two years doing treatment that doesn't work. 
and yes. you get worse and worse. So those those are the experiences that I've had, uh, both with doctors and with naturopaths. Um, yes. You know, going down these pathways that are dead ends. Whereas if the doctor had said, "I don't know," then even though that in itself is sort of a dead end, it leaves the door open to go to another doctor and to try to get help from someone who might know better. And it might take it a while to find that person, but that is a better path to be on. So that honesty is. piece is so important. And I totally, I mean, people listening might say, your doctor telling you they don't know what to do sounds awful, but I get what you're saying that to me, that honesty is huge and would have, and would be very helpful in that situation. It, it was. And um, it gave me, it gave me power and control. Yeah. over what was going to be my future from mm. that point. And where do you go from there when your doctor tells you, look, I've, I tested you positive for Lyme disease, for all of these co-infections, um, for so much came back positive that we can't even remember what all the things are. Where do you go next? Like, what, what happens after that? Exactly. Um, the reason that I chose this doctor in the first place was because of the amount of degrees and certifications that he had mm -hmm. in alternative medicine, in addition to his medical degrees. Yeah. And so I, I knew that this was a person who, one, was interested enough in research to go outside of what he was taught in medical school and to go past all of those years of studying and take on more and to learn more way outside of the box. And so when he said, I really don't know what to do, it gave me space. There was not this pressure to make a decision and to jump on something or to move forward like, my God, this is terrible. We have to do something right now. Mm -hmm. It gave me the space to breathe and grieve and come to terms with the understanding that right now, insofar as we know, we, we don't know who could deal with a mess <laughs> like this. Go take some space. And that's, that is exactly what I did, was take a lot of space. And I, after decades of spending all of my free time researching, reading medical papers and research papers and, you know, down the rabbit hole on all of it over and over, I just stopped. Mm. I just stopped. I removed myself from all of the groups and the forums, and I stopped opening the email accounts that received um, the new medical research, and I took a break. And I think that that is something that we don't tend to get, even if it's just going in and being told, look, you have fibromyalgia. We don't know why. And we don't know what causes it. And it's incurable. And we don't have a ton of success with the treatments that we have, but we have a list and, and we can start going down that list with you. Yeah. We skip over the part about grieving. Hmm. You've just changed somebody's life forever. Take some time. This is a lot to integrate. 
That yeah, is that's a so... very, very different thing than what we tend to get. Totally. I was just about to say that's so rare. Most of us, most of the time, we go in and when they say something like, you have fibromyalgia, they act like light is now shining behind them and they have really, really done something. They took the symptoms that you described to them and they gave you the Latin word for that. Yeah. No! <laughs> You're welcome! Yeah. No! <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Wow. Fibromyalgia. You, hey, guess what? I actually took Latin. For three years, yeah, oh, I can define what fibromyalgia means. Yeah. Thank you. What is it? That's great. <laughs> you have pain yeah. <laughs> in your tissues. Yes. Yeah. That's that's it. Yeah. That's it. And, uh, you know, I, I read something a long time ago that said if you – really want to know what to do in a situation, always allow somebody to believe that you are as stupid as they think that you are, because then you will know who you are dealing with. Mm. And that is the reality of how I approach medical appointments. I go in and I let them think that I am as uneducated and beneath them as they want to think. And that tells me immediately if this is somebody that it is even worth my time yeah. to work with, much less do I want to put myself in the position for this person to potentially cause more harm to me and through that to my life and to my family with how they are going to respond to everything that should be ahead of us as a team. Yeah. If absolutely. they do not consider us a team and I am not respectable, and if I have information, they don't want to hear it, I'm done. I'm done. I don't have what it takes anymore to go through that. Yeah. And I would rather take a step back and breathe and understand that whatever is causing the primary symptoms that are affecting me in my life. This is not going to be a quick answer. There is very few people out there that can provide me with something new on the topic. And uh, it's okay to take some time. Yeah. How and much time did you take? To do. Well, I'm about to be 42 and my first diagnosis was at 12, but we started trying to figure out what's wrong with a May before that. That's for yeah. sure. I mean, so after, after the 35, when you were 35 and you had these new diagnoses and you took a minute mm -hmm. to yourself, how long did you need? I went back to physicians um, when I moved here to Wisconsin. So I moved here last last fall hmm. from a very, very remote uh, area in our country. And I thought, well, I have more to choose from. So new environment, new situation. Let's treat it like it's that and uh, give it a go. Yeah. Maybe I'll get lucky with yeah. something. Um, the amount of medicine that's being practiced and funded in this state is, is actually another very interesting 
topic um, about why it is that way. But um, I also went to the University of Wisconsin and I have mad respect for what they do as a research university and how mm. frequently UW is, is actually the one that has produced this amazing new bit of research. So I thought, what the hell, if I'm going to get lucky yeah. in this country, maybe it'll be here. Yeah, so, your UW is different than my UW. Mine is University of Washington. Yours is the University yeah. of Wisconsin, but it sounds like they're both a good option. <laughs> yeah, actually, they, they both are. They are, they are both respectable. Yeah. Um, what I can tell you is that uh, it makes me very sad, um, the difference between, maybe not the difference, the space between the research and the practice. Hmm. And so, while I expected to find better treatment here, what I have found instead is uh, more damaging really? than what I have received anywhere else. Wow. Um, it's very sad yeah. to me. I'm There's sorry so to much hear that. potential. I am too. And, and not, not even just on a personal level. When I think about it, what I feel sad about is the total wasting of, of potential. Yeah. Mm. Well, the goes, way the amount of medicine being cracked, it's the primary industry in the state other than manufacturing. It is medicine. There are so many clinics, so many doctors, and there are so many research facilities and universities. There's so much potential. And to see it not being used is kind of devastating yeah. to me. And it goes and back to what you were saying that, you know, not all teaching hospitals are the same. And if you have never tried a teaching hospital, it's worth trying it. But yes. you might not have a good experience and it's okay to try someone else after that. It is. Yeah. And when, when you have the energy yeah. and the emotional capacity and all of the other things that, that we expend when we go through this process, when you have it, yeah, it's worth it. It is worth it. In my opinion, to keep trying, you know, I can tell you what so many will tell you that one of the worst referrals to get is a neurologist you know you need to go. When you get that referral, you know you need a neurologist. You, yeah. you don't doubt it for a second. You know it. And you've probably been fighting to get that referral for a long time. And you finally get the referral to a neurologist. And very quickly, you learn that that is the one specialty that is going to crush <laughs> you. If ever you are going to encounter a physician that is going to gaslight and disrespect you to the degree that you are actually adding to that medical PTSD, hmm. boy, are the chances high in neurology. It sucks. Yeah. Um, I, my most recent um, neurology appointment, it was months leading up to it. And the closer and closer I got, the more my anxiety level went up. I was not looking forward to it. And I had absolutely 
zero hopes. Mm. It's just taking the step that was in front of me. This is what I need to do. So this is what I'm going to do. And if it does not work out, I'll either take some space or I'll keep going down that path with whatever the next available step is. So I went and it was terrible. (laughs) She respected me to my face. Um, And I thought it was a pretty decent appointment. Uh, And then I waited over a month for the notes from that appointment to show up in my chart so that I could read them, which is another thing that a lot of patients do not know that they Mm -hmm. should do. Mm -hmm. You have your summary and they print that out and they give it to you. And then you think, well, this is what they had to say about it. No, 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 no. There are notes that they take that go in that other physicians that you see are going to read and getting those notes removed from your medical records. It's not going to happen. Right. Um, I read those notes after I waited a long time and for the first time in 30 years of working on this, I was so offended Mm. and horrified at the inaccuracies that I actually printed out the pages of those notes and they were pages and pages and pages printed them out and went with a highlighter line by line highlighting everything that was completely inaccurate and could be found as such in my other medical records, as well as everything that had me going, well, if you found that very interesting, why didn't you just ask me? I could have answered that. We were talking about this before we started recording. You said that the neurologist had written everything as, I find it interesting that, and there was a whole bunch of them, but one of them you mentioned before is like, I find it interesting that the patient um, doesn't remember all or all the diseases or something along those lines. Doesn't remember the symptoms the of symptoms, this yes, yes. specific thing. Yeah. Um, so that, that specific, uh, it was narcolepsy with, with cataplexy. Mm-hmm. And um, I had told her, you know, briefly, um, yes, I was diagnosed with this. That was my last neurologist. That was years ago at this point this was the treatment i was taken off that treatment because when that neurologist retired the next one that i had didn't feel like that was accurate moving on yeah that's all the necessary notes on that um she writes i find it interesting that the patient is diagnosed with an incurable lifelong disease as severe as this and can't list the symptoms of cataplexy and also makes a note that it was diagnosed and then it was confirmed by the next neurologist. One, it wasn't confirmed. Right, and you that's said the opposite. in my medical records. Yeah. You should be able to see. And uh, two, I told you. <laughs> and three, if you find it interesting, ask. Totally. Have well, the respect to ask me. It leads, it's representative of several problems at once. One of them mm-hmm. is that, you know, this comes up all the time on this show. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little twitchy over here. I'm trying to hold it together. <laughs> You're totally fine. Yeah. Um, I, I might have a little trouble speaking. I'm going to do my best. 
um, it's rough as a podcast host that sometimes I can't speak clearly. I, I understand. And if, yeah. if you need a break or you want to pick up at another time. Yeah, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna forget okay. what I'm about to say if I don't say it now. <laughs> but it sounds to me like your neurologist is not fully listening to you. It sounds like you got in this situation where, you know, you start to list all the things that you've been diagnosed with and all the things that you've discussed with other doctors over the years. And the person you're talking to is like, okay, whatever. I, you know, this is too much. This can't be real. And they stop listening. And, you know, neurologists should know more than anyone that sometimes things are diagnosed that might, you know, may be incorrect. There could be, you know, misdiagnoses. And it's not the patient's responsibility to track down what is 100% medically accurate, that's what you go to a doctor for. And two- On top of it, if we do that, you know what? They look at us and they go, okay, Dr. Google. Exactly, right. On top of that, when you go to a neurologist, all of the things we've been discussing, you know, like Lyme disease and all of these things can cause brain fog, you know? And it can be really, really hard to express a clear thought. I am experiencing it right now. I'm pushing through it. I'm trying to get my thoughts out. You know, we just stopped and paused for a second so I could get my thoughts together. But I'm, it's right now, it's like extra difficult for me to get a sentence out. And if you're in a doctor's office and the doctor is, you know, asking all these questions, if you are a patient with brain fog or anything like that, it can be extra hard to give coherent answers. So if the doctor's yeah. not really trying to hear you, um, and you can tell by the notes that this doctor left behind that they weren't necessarily taking you seriously. And when they do that behind closed doors, but not to your face, it's extremely damaging because those notes go to the next doctor. Yes. Yes. And those notes then, you know, when somebody like me sees the notes like that, what happens is that I take a step back and I have to ask myself if it is worth it to me to go forward with the tests that right. she did order mm, or wow. to attempt to see another doctor first right now. Wow. And what yeah. questions will I be asked about the tests that I did that may or may not have been correctly done? What are mm. they going to ask if I choose not to do those tests or if I choose to get a second opinion? Yeah. Very it can difficult all come questions. Back Very on difficult. Me yep. Rather than actually taking a step back and understanding the reality of the path that people like us have to go through, as yeah. well as our absolute right to have information before we consent to any of that yeah. and make a decision and to ask for other opinions. And if we don't like them, to keep asking until we find what we're looking for, because while it's 15 minutes of their life, it is the entirety of ours. Well said. Yeah. And so people ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I found out that I had EDS while I was sitting on my bed, going through the papers of my lab reports, and I saw something and I went, that's a lot of genetic mutations in that one area that's what is that yeah what is that tied to is that tied to one of these these things and i i just am not familiar so i looked it up and i started digging and i sat by myself in my bed at 11 o'clock at night and went 
oh my God, that isn't just one mutation associated with this disease I've only ever heard of once in my life and it's not good. Um, it's all of them. So it's all of them. Was it this neurologist and we've been discussing who ran this genetic test? This was the physician when I was 35 that oh, okay. ran so many tests. Yeah. And um, in this, I guess I would say, you know, I got lucky. He was doing everything and yeah. he did. He was thorough, which is why I had a genetic report mm. like that to be able to look at. But, uh, you know, it's not reasonable to think that he had the amount of time that I had yeah. to look at it. So and he didn't even catch the ehlers down. He didn't know. He didn't know. Wow. Yeah, because no didn't. doctor can know everything. That's why we have specialists. But unfortunately, specialists only know about their specialty and sometimes can't connect the dots to other things. So it it often falls to the patient to connect the because dots. Because they don't work together. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So yes. wow, you so you discovered you had yes. Ehlers Danlos on your own by reading your own report. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can I can still feel I have a memory inside my body and I can I can feel yeah. that moment in my body when I think about it. Um I uh I spread the papers out and I looked at them again. I had checked it over and, and over and over and I looked pretty desperately for something that would tell me that I didn't have all the information and it was it was not that it just hmm. looked like it um no do you have any of the it hyper any of the hypermobility associated with Ehlers-Danlos oh yeah really wow <laughs> yeah um and you know they, they don't even have um they think they might possibly have found uh, a mutation associated with the hypermobile type. Yeah. Um, but it's the rest of the types that we have genetic testing for. Oh, okay. So um, do I have the hypermobile type? Uh, yeah, I got a clinical diagnosis for mm -hmm, it. Right. Um, but because of the overlap um, in the different variations of EDS, it's, it's impossible. To well, know a clinical um, clinical diagnosis is the best you get a lot of the time like there anyone is. who's ever been diagnosed with fibromyalgia it's a clinical diagnosis because right. they don't know how to, to test for it and in, the doctors in a definitive will, way they will stand by that clinical diagnosis yeah, yeah they know they know you have fibromyalgia because they tested it and it, that's a clinical diagnosis yes um yeah. and in that regard they'll talk to you about how we don't have a, a lab test for that but someday we will and it's okay because this test is accurate and and i know that yeah. that's you, what you have you're reminding I me have you're I, I have i'm so sorry i have to share this with you because you just reminded yeah. me of something when i was diagnosed with fibromyalgia my doctor um poked my body in 11 places and if like seven or more of them were painful yeah. then that was <laughs> then that was a positive for fibromyalgia if you have the yeah. like the symptoms of like the chronic pain and then ex exhaustion and stuff so i literally yeah. got like the poke test where it's like okay it hurts in these places you have fibromyalgia <laughs> and then that diagnosis prevented me from getting care later on down the line because yeah. you know when my all my other doctors are like this can't be fibromyalgia because it's progressing we need to go back to the drawing board and i went to this pain clinic and the guy's like well you were diagnosed with fibromyalgia by this doctor who i know and respect so i don't think any of these other doctors who disagree are right and i think we need to treat you for fibromyalgia 
And I'm like, well, uh -huh. I, I did that for years and it didn't yeah. work after a while. It worked at first and then it stopped working. So oh yeah, God. just that clinical diagnosis of being poked in a couple of places, you know, years later, because it's in the chart, it still has yep. repercussions for my care. So everything you're saying yep. is like, you know, I, I've, I've been on like this parallel journey that is, is very similar, even with completely different diagnoses, although some have overlapped because I've been misdiagnosed with fibro and with Lyme at this point. But, but yeah, but now you have the genetic mutations say, for Ehlers-Danlos. Like you, you, you have that on a test. And yet I do. you're still struggling to find care and to get definitive answers from doctors. I am. And the, the way in which that uh, is my reality is uh, it's not funny. I, you know, I laugh. Right. Oh, I know. I do that all the time. And I laugh because I relate. When I, uh, when I looked at those papers and I realized that that, that that was there, just written right on my DNA, my response, I started laughing. Yeah. And then I started laughing so hard. I just laid my face right down on the bed in front of me, you know, because I have EDS probably. <laughs> I was able to turn my, I'm sitting, I'm sitting crisscross applesauce on my bed and I just fall forward, face on the mattress in front of me. And I'm laughing hysterically because I was. It, it was a little bit yeah. of momentary hysteria yeah. of you have got to be freaking <laughs> kidding me. All of that other stuff, that wasn't enough. Yeah. I, it's like, I wanted to ask my body, like, did you think there was some sort of re reward for just having all the things? Because <laughs> yeah. there's not. Right. <laughs> you can stop now. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I do have it in black and white. Yeah. That I have not just one of the mutations, I have almost all of those mutations, and it crosses multiple different types of EDS. Um, and then in most cases, I don't have one copy, I have both copies. Wow. Um, so we're, we're talking about um, homozygous, um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, um, if you're a doctor and you want it in black and white, there oh, honey, here it is. It doesn't <laughs> get a lot more I did not understand that. But, yeah, you, you can't know. misunderstand that. Yeah. We're not going to have to hunt and search to find out, you know, why your hemoglobin is this or no. It is written for you. This is what this patient has. Uh, so you would think yeah. that that would have helped me so, in my process. And it. It hasn't. Yeah, um, where, where are I you at now? That's it. insane. I mean, you have all these different diagnoses, but it right. sounds like you're not necessarily being treated effectively for anything. And I know a lot of these no. things, there might not be effective treatments, but there are there things are, to try. There are some things to try. Um, what I have definitely found, and, and this is uh, where my frustration lies right now, is that while there aren't really... Um, a lot of effective treatments. And after this amount of time, um, I have tried. I have <laughs> list something that worked for somebody. Um, I assure you, yeah. uh, I, I tried it with uh, all the passion yeah. of a person whose life is being stripped away from them in front of, in front of their, their growing babies. Yeah. Um, yes, I tried. Um, 
in addition to having it in black and white, of course, you know, I have a clinical diagnosis. The doctor mm -hmm. looks at it and goes, okay, well, let me see, I guess. And then uh, proceeds to look up the method for clinically diagnosing or um, eliminating the diagnosis of, of EDS. And so we did that in the office. And, and I said, okay, um, in addition to that, uh, you didn't see this and this. <laughs> Let me just show you in case you see somebody in the future that comes in and goes, why do I have bubbles inside my heel when I put pressure on it? Uh, don't be one of those doctors that goes, hmm, I don't know. Yeah. But I don't think it's related to what we're talking about. So moving on. It's related. So let me show it to you. Hmm. Um, I have all of that. Every way that you can choose to diagnose something. Um, so when I got here and I decided to, to give it a go to see if I could get access to anything that might improve my quality of life. Yeah. I don't expect them to cure it. I know they can't make it go away. I don't have unreasonable requests or expectations. I want to do what we can do to try to increase my quality right. of life, right, right. which increases the quality of life of my children, my partner, my friends. Reasonable. Everyone. Reasonable everyone. request. And uh, it's not a unreasonable thing right. to focus on. Um, and I can't get it. Wow. I'm surrounded by doctors. You can't hardly walk out of the house and not trip over some medical professional here. And can I get help? No. Wow. I had a doctor go through the whole thing and he did the, the old clinical test for EDS. Um, it was updated in 2017 and it's very different now. Um, he did the old one. And of course, you know, I failed everything bent and did weird positions as, as it does. Failed as in um, a positive result. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. yeah it, it was positive. Yes. Right. Um, there's EDS. Yes. Um, check, 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 check. <laughs> um, and he still looked at me knowing and looking at my medical records, which contained the genetic tests and the previous clinical diagnosis and said, well, I just don't know if you have EDS. I think it's probably fibromyalgia. Hmm. And he also knew that I had had that diagnosis when I was 12 and it has now been 30 years. Um, and that diagnosis was removed a long, long time ago, yeah. actually. He knew all of this, and he still put that damn word back in my medical records and then scheduled me to go to cognitive behavioral therapy mm. after explaining to me what the word idiopathic means and what fibromyalgia translates. Oh, these are Latin or Greek roots, and I'm going, mm-hmm, oh. <laughs> Okay. Why? Because I have no ego, no skin in the game on them respecting me at that point. If he had no respect for me 
to listen to what I was saying and to pay attention to everything that as a patient I had already done and been through and tried to do something other than disregard a diagnosis that was genetically and clinically verified to tell me that I have a disease that he can't test for and he can't treat and I want to send you to therapy. Um, yeah, I've been there. There was no point that, that, at that point. That's happened to me as well. So why, why am I going to tell him that um, unlike him, likely I took several years of, of Latin. <laughs> I, I don't need you to explain what idiopathic yeah. means. And I think a lot of patients who have spent any amount of time on this road also without taking Latin for years probably know what idiopathic means because they've been thrown these words as if they are answers when they are not answers and they don't actually assist us in getting farther a lot of the time. Yeah. This way that we are doing medicine in this country of all of my patients are ignorant. And if they know something, then okay, Dr. Google. And if they don't know something, okay, stupid, let me explain it to you. It has to stop. It has to stop. Maybe you don't know. And this is the first patient that you've had. And you never thought because nobody told you that EDS was going to walk into your office someday or something else that you have no idea what it is. You don't know. Why are none of the tests telling you what is wrong with this patient? And you want to assume the patient isn't crazy and making it up. Something's wrong, but you can't figure it out. Yeah. All of that is a lousy, lousy situation. And we do not need to make it worse by disrespecting and disregarding and losing every opportunity to learn something from that patient who knows something in a way that you can not. Hmm. There are patients out there that are saying, I'm having neurological things. This is what it feels like. This is what I sense before something happens. And instead of compiling that information to realize what we generally realize by talking to one another, that this is not a one-off situation. Yeah. Very frequently, there are countless people who know exactly what you are talking about. And do the doctors know? No, they don't. Because we're compiling that information in a desperation to help ourselves. Yep. Every day that goes by that it continues this way, it's just another day delaying the point that we finally get down the line and we know something. How many people across time have been told that they are crazy and that's not a real thing and there's no test for that because it doesn't exist and, and, and just to find out down the line maybe you're lucky and it's years maybe you're not lucky and it's a hundred or more years before the industry catches up with you the patient yeah 
And then we go, wow, I can't believe we used to think that. How embarrassing. (laughs) And then we continue to move on as if that isn't the story of how science works. Exactly. It's very hard to tell, if not utterly impossible, to know what it is we're going to know in the future that we just don't know right now. So how about a little respect for everyone and every part of this? And if there's a deviation from what you think you know, that should be of primary interest to you. What is that? Why does that deviate from what I know? As a scientist, this should be important information. As patients, it's not what we're getting. And so people, we all reach the point where we go, what's the point? What's the point in continuing? Why should I keep trying? Why should I put myself through this? I've been through it. It's caused so much damage. The people that I know and that I have grown to love and connect with, they are going through it and it's hurting them so much. Why should I try anymore? Yeah, I want to be done. I think I should give up. And you asked me if I think it's worth it. And the thing is, is that I do mm-hmm. think that it's worth it mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. For everybody, I cannot say that. And I think there are plenty of people that know it's not worth it to them. They're not in the position or they don't have the energy or whatever. And maybe it isn't worth it to them right now for some things. But for some of us, I think it is worth it. I think it's worth it to the future generations. I think it's worth it to my three babies who have 50% of my genetics. And they are looking at a future that I hate to think about. So it's worth it to me because I think it's worth it to them. And if we can continue to sort out what is wrong with what we're doing and what is right and what we're missing and what we know and the next generation, or I don't care five generations from now, if it doesn't have to be like this and I played any positive role whatsoever in getting to that point. Yeah. It's worth it to me, but it's also been worth it to me when I have kept trying and I have found those good doctors. Yeah. I have found the ones that told me something that I could actually use. Even if it's just, you are a human being, you deserve respect and a minute to, to grief. Yeah. That's useful information for me. And it's still useful to me almost every day. There's a lot of grieving every day for me. I did not get a career in medicine. I don't have a career outside of being a mother to every child that shows up in my doorstep. (laughs) I don't go out of my house, but once, maybe twice in a month, usually for an appointment that I couldn't reschedule one more time. I don't have a big quality of life. Uh, My neurological symptoms have progressed to a harsh degree, and it sucks. And what I do have is given to my children. 
and the quality of life that's happening inside of my home. Yeah. And uh, there isn't anything much left after that. And uh, despite all of that, I still think it's worth it. Yeah. I still think that we'll get there. And I still think that routinely we as a community have done the most impressive work of sharing what we do find with one another. How many people out there have found out that they have something because somebody in our community explained it and said, hey, this is what it actually feels like for me. This is what it looks like. This was the test that I never expected, but it turned up something I had never heard of. This is the medication that really harmed my reality. Mm -hmm. This is the food that I put in that inexplicably made things better. We are the ones compiling that information. Right. We are the ones building foundations and organizations and websites and podcasts and blogs. We are the ones talking privately to one another in the grocery checkout line. We are the ones doing that work. And I don't care so much right now if they want to use it or not. Because at least we have access to something we did not have access to a decade or two ago. That's only half of my lifetime, two yeah. decades ago. It's different now yeah. than it was then. We have access to communication, the internet, you know, it, what we're doing right now. We're doing yes. exactly what you're talking about right now. Yes. And that, that is like foundational to this show. And you've done an incredible job speaking to the experience of being chronically ill today an incredible job you've been so um uh so verbose about what it feels like and the the roadblocks that you run into and we all are experiencing that and i think just being public and open about that you know yes. it's so important because like you're saying you know we're not getting the help we need. You have a diagnosis, you have a genetic test, and you're not yeah. getting the help you need. And that nope. sometimes you just got to keep pushing and keep pushing. And when you are exhausted, it feels impossible. And in those moments, it's okay to take a second, take a break, disconnect. It is. But, but I agree with you that on the pushing thing. You know, I agree with you that it is worth it. And, you know, for some people, it's not. I agree with, with that as well. For some people, it makes more sense to, to disconnect and to step away and to just live the best you can. And I've done both in my journey, and there was mm -hmm. value in both. And I've kind of oscillated back and forth. And now I'm trying to find a way to live with both at the same time, which is really difficult. But I feel like that's mm -hmm. my best option right now. Um, yeah. But, you know, I... I hear your story. I want you to get the care that you deserve as a human being. I'm upset that you haven't been able to. And I really appreciate you sharing this, the, the journey you've been on this far. I empathize with you. I relate to it. You've done an incredible job. I have one last question for you. Yes. Um, 
if you could send one piece of information through time to yourself when you were at the very beginning of this journey, even before you were 12 years old with that first diagnosis, you know, if you could send one piece of information from your learned experience about what you've been through as a human and as someone who's chronically ill, what would that be? Do not doubt yourself mm. at all about any of it. Do not doubt yourself when you decide to quit and do not doubt yourself when you learn about the system and you learn how to work within it. Don't doubt yourself when your reality doesn't work for somebody else. There's no excuse for doubting yourself as you go down, not just this path, but by God, the path of living a life as a human being in a rapidly changing world. Just keep going. We could talk all day. Everything you're saying is so valuable. <laughs> My body is telling me that it is time for me to take a nap. So <laughs> let's wrap this up. Um, but I'm a little curious why I haven't heard a single one of my three kids here recently. Yeah. So um, <laughs> we should check on that. <laughs> um, but is there anything you'd like to share or plug or your TikTok or any social media, any place you'd like to direct our listeners? Please feel free. I I, I don't. I um like I had said. I I kind of went into to hiding um, hmm. many years ago, and I, I'm still sort of working my way back to yeah. uh, to putting myself out there and um, to what degree and on what of so many topics I could do yeah. a podcast for every podcast that's out there <laughs> and probably have a story that works. I've had a life despite all of this, and I think maybe that's an even better thing, if I could tell myself something when I was 10 or 12, it, it would be this. No, my health has not gotten better. It has felt like it's taken away everything. However, despite that disappointment and that loss, by God, are you going to have an epic life? You will have the stories to fill many, many books, and everyone that knows any of them will tell you all the time how pissed off they are that you haven't written those books yet. It's going to be hard. There's a lot of work. And yes, it's going to feel really unfair. And you are going to have a worthy and exciting life anyway just keep going. Yeah. That's a beautiful note to end it on. Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show thank today. You. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm very excited to share it. And you obviously have a lot to say that is very worth saying. And I'm excited to highlight that on this platform. And I, I'm honored that you shared your story with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the ability to, uh, step out there a little bit yeah, and have something to say outside of my private <laughs> limited by purpose life. It's uh, it was freeing and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's my pleasure. Even if it was only one person that ever heard it, <laughs> it would be so worth it to that one person. So 
the people that are listening to the work that you're doing. It is very important. And I, I really want to thank you for doing that. That means a lot. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, and Brooke Walters Schmidt, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh and Chris Fowler. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition and gifts at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.